Hello and welcome to another episode of Unauthorized Disclosure. I am one of your hosts, Rania Kalik, and I'm joined by the show's other host, Kevin Gastola. Hey, Kevin. Hey. So, um, we've been talking about elections so much that it only made sense to have one of my good friends, Drew Franklin, join us on the show today. Drew is running as an independent candidate for the uh, for DC Council at large seat. Um, he's also a journalist who co-edits the culture and politics blog, Orchestrated Pulse. So you may have read his writings before. So we're really, really excited to have you on the show. Hey, Drew. Hey, thank you. So I guess let's start off with um, you have been called by Salon. Uh, or I guess Salon has anointed you the Bernie Sanders of D.C. Um, and so for people who listen to this show who are familiar with Bernie Sanders and haven't heard of you, let's start off by saying, like, talk. Why don't you give our listeners um, some information about who you are, uh, what your platform is, and I guess, like, why, you know, that makes you the Bernie Sanders of D.C.? Sure. Um, I uh, have been an activist in or an organizer, I prefer to say, in various um, contexts for all of my adult life. Um, that includes labor and organizing um, in solidarity with Palestine. Actually spent three months in the West Bank with the International Solidarity Movement. And um, my decision to run for D.C. Council is really a continuation of that. Um, the press here likes to um, <clears throat> play up the fact or, or kind of act incredulous about the fact that I'm running to the left of the incumbent who has a reputation as a progressive. That's David Grosso, the uh, independent at-large council member. And really just for that reason, I've been... I've been anointed, as you say, the Bernie Sanders of D.C. Um, I think I'm arguably to the left of Bernie Sanders himself, even. <laughs> um, but I, I, I'll, I'll happily associate myself with him uh, in that regard, just because, I mean, I, I do think that uh, there's an opportunity here, kind of an opening to bring leftist politics back into the mainstream. And that's what I'm hoping to achieve. That's one of the things I'm hoping to achieve with this campaign is to make leftist politics relevant in D.C. government. And so what are some of the things on your platform? Like, I know D.C. statehood is one of them. Um, and I guess you can kind of explain to our listeners what that means. But what about the other stuff? And how does that fit into a leftist? Um, sure. I guess like a so left yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so the centerpiece of our platform, uh, we're calling the Drew for D.C. Bill of Rights. And it's a set of five resolutions that um, we are using as a framework to not only build out our own platform, but uh, kind of create a model that other people can independently, if they like, adopt and work towards because the... Um, intention here is really a focus on movement building, is on being a part of something broader and inclusive and not just 
one individual's political ambitions or ambitions to get into government. Um, so the, uh, the Drew for D.C. Bill of Rights, first of all, says that all residents have the right to affordable housing. Um, all students have the right to free and equitable public education, uh, et cetera, et cetera. You can actually check it out at our website, drewfordc.com. Um, but the uh, reason that statehood is relevant to all of this, uh, a lot of your listeners might not know that D.C. is in a very unique situation compared to the rest of the country in that our 600,000-plus residents don't have voting representation in Congress. Uh, we actually only just recently um, were given back our budget autonomy, control over our own local finances, which previously were um, basically under the control of Congress. And there's a whole history there of this political disenfranchisement, which is has a race element to it because um, we actually didn't get these rights until 1973. Um, that's when we got our home rule charter um, from Congress as a result of organizing, um, you know, movement building here locally in order to put pressure on the federal government and back then, I mean, D.C. was like, I mean, the back then with D.C. was still majority black. Like it, was like it may have been like one of the highest proportions of black people in any city in the country, if I'm yeah, not mistaken. Yeah. Yeah. At the time, it was 70 percent black. And prior to that, you know, this is uh, coming right on the heels of uh, the end of Jim Crow, end of segregation. And what's um, interesting about D.C. and that still I think affects us today is that, um, you know, this was a, a city with a large black population that was ruled by a segregationist Congress, which, you know, included uh, people who openly spoke of their desire to get rid of the uh, black population in D.C. And um, that was part of the struggle to get statehood was that, um, that, that racist element there. It wasn't just about suffrage, um, but it was, uh, I, I think one thing that, you know, a lot of people don't know is that integration, when integration uh, took place in D.C. and segregation ended, the means by which it took place um, was actually harmful to the poorer black residents, because although the institutions that we um, had at the time were segregated, they were there. Mm. <laughs> they provided uh, things that people needed, but then they were just raised. I guess integration was kind of used as an excuse to um, just tear down whole neighborhoods and public amenities that people depended on. Wow. And. Yeah, a lot of people don't know that. A lot of people that live in D.C. don't know that. And something that I think is really crucial is that we are finding ourselves in kind of a, a similar situation today with um, this this rampant 
hyper development that has been really uh, actively driven by policy that has displaced black residents, particularly poor black residents, in a very similar manner. Mm. And go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I was just going to point out that in, in um, I think since 2000, or maybe a little bit before that, there's like four, there's, and now there's like 45,000 uh, black people who have left DC because of that sort of development. They've been priced out, they've been pushed out, various public housing complexes have been um, raised, as you say. Uh, and so the makeup of this, the demographic makeup of the city is much, much different than it was even 15 years ago. Yeah, yeah. So, and, and I've seen all this happen myself. And that really is, um, what's influenced my politics. First of all, growing up in what was then known as Chocolate City, you know, going to uh, being in the public school system that was regarded as the worst in the country and that was, you know, also majority black. And then seeing the transformation, this really aggressive um, development that has priced people out come at great costs and also just learning how um, deliberate policy interventions are part of that. So we have something called the New Communities Initiative that um, was implemented, first implemented in 2006 by our then mayor, Anthony Williams, who uh, prior to being mayor was in charge of uh, the financial control board that Congress had imposed on the city uh, during Marion Barry's last term. So uh, this new communities initiative calls for the demolition of public housing mm. uh, around the city. And that's been, they've been carrying that out over the last 10 years. Um, and so it's not just an accident of economics, but there are actually intentional decisions that policymakers and the developers who finance them have made. And that's why I think it's important for us to get involved in the political process locally um, to resist that. And, you know, statehood comes into all of this because... Congress maintains the the right to intervene in our local affairs, and it's something that they do. For example, uh, we, by referendum, by vote, we legalized marijuana in D.C., but we haven't been able to uh, fully implement that legalization because a uh, congressman from Maryland, Andy Harris, who's completely unaccountable to D.C. voters, has, uh, he just added a budget rider hmm. that prohibits us from using our own funds or from using federal funds uh, to, to implement this law. And of course, DC receives a lot of federal funds because we don't have, we have a ban, congressional ban on commuter tax and things like that, um, which makes us dependent on them for finances. And uh, another example is that women on uh, Medicaid can't get abortions in D.C. Whoa. Yeah. Again, because of congressional intervention. So statehood, it's not a single issue, right? It's yeah. not just the principle of representation, which 
in itself, which is, of course is important, but it has all these other effects that uh, condition, you know, housing struggles and education and women's rights and all of that. I also I want to shift a little bit to another issue that you've been you've more publicly engaged, uh, been more publicly engaged on in your journalism, which is the issue of school reform. Um, and I bring that up because D.C., obviously, as you know, has been probably, you know, you could probably call it ground zero for the education reform movement. I mean, that's where Michelle Rhee, um experimented <laughs> with various policies and sort of destroying public schools and bringing about um charter schools. Uh, so, and then you've also written about, um, the teach for, you've written about teach for America pretty extensively, especially in the way it's infiltrated the black, uh, infiltrated black lives matter. Um, and about DeRay McKesson's involvement in that and, um, you know, him being sort of an ambassador for teach for America and, you know, DeRay is also running for mayor of Baltimore at the moment. Um, so I guess, yeah, let's, let's shift a little bit to first, let's, um, you know, what, what's your position on the situation for DC schools? Uh, and then, you know, moving on from that, the issue with the, with organizations like Teach for America and specifically what Teach for America is doing and trying to rebrand itself as an anti-racist movement, um, and using Black Lives Matter as a vehicle to do it. Sure. So, um, other cities like New York and Chicago had, implemented this um, this method of corporate education reform before it happened in D.C. But what was, again, unique in D.C. Uh, was that when our then mayor, Adrian Fancy, wanted to uh, take over control of the school system, which at the time was controlled by an elected or partially elected school board, he had to lobby uh, for Congress to amend our district charter, our home rule charter, in, a, in order to allow for that. So yet again, here's an example of uh, local affairs that uh, Congress is involved in. And uh, what, what this model is um, that happened, for example, Mayor Bloomberg in New York uh, took over the school board, just completely... Um, restructured the system. So they got rid of the elected school board and then he appointed his own. Uh, in Chicago, the same thing happened. The mayor, you have unilateral control basically over the school system, public school systems in all these major cities. Um, here in D.C., it was when Adrian Fenty successfully uh, got allowance from Congress to do this, he created the office of the um, chancellor of D.C. public schools. Mm. And the chancellor, as you mentioned, was Michelle Rhee, who is an alumna of Teach for America. And Teach for America is basically at the vanguard of corporate education reform. Um, they're a, a nonprofit that is financed by some of the wealthiest philanthropists in the world, including Bill Gates, um, the Walton family who own Walmart, uh, all the big Hillary banks. Hillary Clinton's friends. Yes. <laughs> In fact, yeah, Hillary Clinton is uh, herself a pioneer of this kind of education reform, which, um, you know, what 
as a quick aside, I want to stress that this is a bipartisan affair. Right. Republicans and Democrats are very uh, deeply involved in this thing and supportive of it. And what it requires, one of the things that it requires is to bust teachers' unions because they're an obstacle for privatization. That's the end game here is to privatize school systems. That's why they uh, get rid of democratic structures and have mayors take control of them because then the mayors can just make unilateral decisions to restructure the school system and hand it over to uh, private businesses and corporations. Um, and so TFA has uh, really grown in the last 25 years to become a powerful force in uh, education reform. And something that I noticed when Ferguson, the Ferguson uprising was taking place, at this point, I guess it's been a couple of years, hasn't it? A year and a half? Yeah, summertime will be two years. So um, there was this guy, DeRay McKesson, who, uh, like, like a lot of us, I was paying attention through social media, primarily Twitter, to uh, keep up with what, everything that was happening in Ferguson. And this guy, DeRay, just uh, kind of seemed like out of nowhere, he just amassed this huge following. At least, you know, from, from here in D.C., we got the impression that he was one of the leaders of this movement. And I noticed right away that he was affiliated with Teach for America. Right, he like had and, it in his profile, right? Like that yeah, he like he's, a proud I think he still alum. does. Yeah. Um, and he did then, it said... It said Teach for America alumni, because he doesn't know the difference between singular and plural, alumnus, <laughs> alumni, where he consistently misspells the word protester, things like that. This is somebody that claims that, you know, he wants to educate kids. But as is often the case, I find with TFA operatives, they, uh, they lack a lot of basic pedagogical principles. But... In any case, uh, that when I, as soon as I saw that, that set off, you know, my alarms. It was a huge red flag because I knew from living here in D.C. And, and witnessing Michelle Rhee's reign of terror, where she closed half the schools and fired hundreds of teachers and principals, uh, that TFA is bad news. And I had to kind of just... It, at first, honestly, I was afraid to say anything critical or to ask uh, critical questions because um, the, the atmosphere then was really just that one of deference, total deference to these uh, ostensible leaders of what they were calling the Black Lives Matter movement or the movement for black lives. But uh, over time, you know, it just became more and more obvious that TFA was up to something down there in Ferguson. And I started to research it and uh, determined that uh, this was actually part of a open effort that TFA has been engaged in. Um, you know, it's important to stress that throughout you know, the last 25 years uh, when they've been bringing education, when they've played really an um, indispensable role in bringing corporate education reform to school districts around the country, it has targeted 
and and harmed disproportionately poor black and brown uh, students and teachers. It and this is not a secret. I mean, there's been a lot of talk and even research into the racist um, effects of Teach for America. And their effort has been to rebrand themselves in order to mitigate that uh, crisis in their image. And that rebranding is as a social justice, in particular, an anti-racist organization. And the uh, uprisings against police violence in Ferguson and then around the country presented an opportunity for TFA to do just that. DeRay also had, there was, you know, DeRay's connections to TFA were, I mean, he was an alumnus, right? But there was no evidence that he was being paid by them to do this or anything like that. But his peer, um, Brittany Packnett, was in and remains executive director of TFA St. Louis. Uh, and so it was clear to me that Brittany Packnett was working for Teach for America toward this end. Mm-hmm. And with DeRay, it's like I just had to raise questions. What is he up to? And I was called a conspiracy theorist and all these things when I suggested that he was a political operative, is what I called it. Because TFA, um, they, they again, Wendy Kopp, their founder, has said many times that their primary purpose is not to create good teachers. It is uh, to create it's supposed it's to be a pathway to a sort of elite uh, career. Yeah. There and how that, you know, what they do is train people to become politicians, uh, primarily. Um, and what we found since I first wrote about this is that DeRay <laughs> uh, announced that he was running as mayor of Baltimore. And so that confirmed a lot of. Uh, the suspicions that we had about what he was up to. And, you know, looking into it further, it's not just DeRay. There's um, somebody, uh, Zeke Cohen, is running for the first district council in Baltimore. Mm -hmm. Um, And these guys are getting a lot, they're getting tons of money from outside contributors, including... Sheryl Sandberg, the COO of Facebook. There's uh, Stacey Schusterman, who not only bankrolls corporate education reform, but Israeli apartheid. Mm -hmm. Uh, These are, you know, this is part of like massive neoliberal structures that are, you know, a lot of people have done a lot of work analyzing this. It's not a grand conspiracy theory. This is uh, our current political system and landscape at work. Uh, You know what I find interesting about all that is that one of the attacks, because interestingly enough, Teach for America has actually responded to both of your articles. Um, Like actually like on their website, like written a response specifically to Drew. Uh, And, um, but the the attacks from both Teach for America and supporters of DeRay have been that you're a white, you're white and therefore shouldn't be disagreeing with a black person. Um, and that somehow it's racist for you to be attacking Teach for America because it's like black people who are leading this at the moment. Uh, so how do you respond to that? 
Yeah, so TFA is kind of that's they uh, allude to that. Um, you know, these are these are PR uh, press releases. They're just doing damage control, so they're not too overt with it. I think they're smarter than that. But then they have people um, working for them, not necessarily on their payroll, perhaps independently. But uh, something that's important to understand with TFA is that. Um, <laughs> It is, it, they've got, they're spread out. They've got a large network of people who have different relationships with them, either as alumni or they have financial relationships, et cetera. Um, but there's one guy, uh, what's he called? Citizen Stewart. He's a, he, he has a blog that's pro TFA, pro corporate education reform. And that's his whole thing is, um, labeling and uh teachers unions as racist as like this old guard of a, a racist uh education system uh and he interviewed me he was his he never put an article out i don't know if that's forthcoming or he just decided against it but that was exactly what i was accused of in that conversation was going after deray just because he's black and my response to that is just, you know, uh, don't don't focus on the personalities here, not mine or DeRay's. Focus on the facts. Uh, the fact is now it's it's beyond dispute that 95 percent of the DeRay for mayor campaign's uh, contributions have come from outside of Baltimore. And he's gotten you know, tons of money from tech companies that are involved in uh, education reform, you know, from uh, executives in, in Netflix and Slack. And, um, you know, he had this really swanky fundraiser in Manhattan that was hosted by a Citibank or a former Citibank executive who also was on the TFA board. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it's 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 not. Uh, ideological here. This is all basic facts. This is yeah, all it pretty deep. Yeah, it runs pretty deep too. Like it's it runs pretty deep, but it's all publicly available information. You know, <laughs> I'm I'm not out here claiming that let's <laughs> lock down the towers and the right. airplanes were holograms. Like this is all stuff that you can look up yourself. <laughs> right. Campaign finance reporting is public in any state in America. You can go online and yourself look up where money is coming and going from political campaigns. And I encourage people to do so. Hell, you can do it with mine. What you'll find with my campaign is that I'm definitely not being supported by banks. Right. Or anybody, you know, any corporate education reformers. I'm not getting donations from Facebook CEOs. So, um, but it, it, this is how PR works, right? You just, you can do things out in the open if you've got the resources to spin it for the public in media. And like with DeRay, uh, he's consistently been um, coddled, I think, by mainstream journalists. Right. Uh, my experience when I talked to him for uh, my story was that he was totally unprepared for really basic critical questions like, you know, uh, who's on your who's on your campaign? Where's your money coming from? Because he, 
you know, this information wasn't available yet at the time. Uh, there's a lot, of, there's some evidence that this Campaign Zero uh, platform that he, um, Brittany Packnick, came out with a year or so ago, uh, which hasn't really had many tangible, discernible um, products. Like, I, I, you know, I don't know what they've actually done. Uh, but I do know that they are sending out DeRay for Mayor campaign fundraising emails to people who signed up for Campaign Zero, which was supposed to be about police reform. It's, it's, it's a lot of smoke and mirrors, basically. You know, if you look, if you turn on the TV and see DeRay on the Colbert Report or the Colbert's show, uh, whatever it is now, um, or if you read any Baltimore Sun article about him, they rarely even mention TFA. And if they do, it's just, you know, it's, it's put in a positive light. He's a former teacher. And actually, there's, there's a lot of editorials that are just glowing, just saying that, you know, he's, he's uh, got what Baltimore needs. And it's, again, this is all, it's not, it's not about DeRay himself. I'm not concerned about him as an individual so much as I'm concerned about his role in the wider system that uh, involves major corporations, big money that also happens to own mainstream media outlets. And, and this shouldn't be controversial in itself because this is, you know, this is how um, media works in today's world, right? You've got major corporate conglomerates that, control the majority of the media like you know sanders is a good example just the coverage of uh the the democratic primary which you know cnn will um just not cover sanders campaign even when he wins um they'll report that they'll include superdelegates in their uh, reporting of how many delegates delegates each candidate has which is really misleading because there's a big difference between superdelegates and pledged delegates um so again this is these are structures that condition everything that happens in the public sphere it applies to so many things it's not a conspiracy theory to say that you know if you follow the money you'll find out who has influence over these things and what we find is that it's the richest people in the world that are uh, behind the, the uh, sweeping education reform that's taking place in this country. Um, and these are the same people who, um, you know, benefited from the 2008 financial crisis. Um, this is the same people, you know, Walmart going around and basically bleeding small towns dry and even moving into urban centers here in D.C. D.C., yeah, we have a Walmart in D.C. now. We have a few, but we were supposed to, we, uh, in um, Ward 7, which is east of the Anacostia River, it's uh, majority black, it's black neighborhoods there. Um, it's not wealthy like west of the river. Uh, they were prompt, the condition of having Walmarts in some of the nicer parts of town is that they would build one in this neighborhood called uh, Skyland where they promised that they would bring jobs 
revenue, you know, revitalize the neighborhood. And also there's like no grocery stores, right? So there's deserts out there. Like they really do need um, some development out there. Yeah. But, uh, and they re they like, they um, knock down buildings and, and uh, small businesses were pushed out to make way for this Walmart that at the 11th hour, uh, Walmart said, uh, never mind. We're not going to build there. No consequences. No consequences because the uh, government, DC government, in its negotiations with Walmart, uh, first of all, it was a handshake deal. They didn't get anything right. <laughs> Whoa! So yeah, so that's it's gonna crazy. Be, they're gonna have a, a tough time like pursuing this in court. And uh, you know, one thing I advocate in order to mitigate the harmful effects of the rapid development in the city is uh, community benefits agreements. And they had, they did have a community benefits or they were trying to negotiate one with Walmart. One of the things they wanted to negotiate, one of the demands that the city made of Walmart was that uh, they would pay a minimum wage of 1250 an hour to their workers. And as soon as that uh, demand was made, Walmart threatened to pull out of the deal entirely and so the city dropped it. And then, you know, so they, they really worked us. Yeah. And it was something that the residents didn't have any, there's no accountability to this. You know, it was done on our behalf, which is why um, I think that there needs to be a policy in place, like a this community benefits agreement that we were working out with them. It's, it's always ad hoc. There's no real obligation for any business, uh, for anybody to um, agree to uh, these kinds of things like a living wage. I think there needs to be a community benefits policy that is binding you wide. And it's if you want to do business in D.C., you have to meet certain criteria. It has to be structured in such a way that uh, it's not going to, you know, rezoning is not going to kick people out of their homes or there's, uh, it's not the increase in rents is not going to price people out. Um, these, these things are all possible. It's been done before, right. but there's just not political will to do it because, um, you know, the the council and the mayor are all completely beholden to these financial interests. And that's like the last point I guess we'll, we'll, we'll bring it to is the fact that, so are you are not, I assume taking money from, private interests right yeah i'm uh not taking money from um any developers for sure i'll consider taking money from small businesses depending on who they are Mm. i think the the main uh base of support that i'm i'm working for toward is uh labor Mm -hmm. i think that this is you know um labor unions are institutions that the left can and should depend on as an alternative to being um, supported by other, you know, by private interests who's, uh, who, who benefit from things that are ultimately harmful to residents here. Gotcha. And, um, and how can people find out more about your campaign, especially if they live in D.C.? Well, one second, Randy. I have a couple questions. Oh, sorry. I, like, totally left you out, Kevin. <laughs> 
It's I'm not. such an asshole. Sometimes I just think that I'm the only person that exists in the universe, and I'm not. So Kevin, no, it's, a, it's a good conversation, and I didn't want to interrupt the flow. But before we wrap <laughs> it, I do have a couple questions for you, Drew. So uh, if I was a hostile CNN anchor, I would say, <laughs> you're running as an independent. What do you have against Democrats? But in a less hostile way, uh, what made you decide to run as an independent. I mean, there are people who have your politics who would jump on the Democratic ticket as well. That's true. Um, I, I've always been an independent. I've always been registered as an independent since uh, I was old enough to vote. And uh, the reason for that is because I think that the Democratic establishment um, is completely invested in the status quo. Um, you know, the the what we discussed about education reform, I think, is illustrative of that. And in D.C., we do have the benefit of having two of the at-large council seats set aside for uh, non-majority party members. The majority party is Democrats, uh, and that, you know, that creates um, an, an opening for independents or uh, people in the statehood Green Party or even Republicans to run. Republicans never win, uh, thank God. But um, the thing that I want to stress here is that typically what happens in D.C. is that Democrats uh, who often, you know, even run the first time in the Democratic primary, the second time they switch to independent in order to have access to this seat. And I haven't, I haven't done that. I've been an independent this whole time because uh, that's actually, you know, part of my, that's my politics. I'm not down with the Democratic Party uh, in general, at least, you know, the party establishment for sure. I don't want to be beholden to it in any way. Uh, and so people can be assured that this is not, you know, that kind of maneuvering. Uh, but that I've actually, you know, it's it's principled. I'm an independent for a reason. Yeah, that's what Joe Lieberman did when he lost to Ned Lamont. Right. And uh, it's a typical Democratic Party move. So uh, my last question, or my second question, is uh, to have you comment on a debate that's been going on a lot among the left, especially especially in this election, uh, there's been a lot of discussion about whether people should be, I suppose the way to put it is, making claims of the state. I mean, you're making a decision to run for office, and I'm sure there's aspects of uh, the D.C. Council and, and the way that government is run that you believe is rigged, but you're making a, con a conscious choice to engage in it. And uh, there's a lot of people... Uh, among us who are dismissive of getting engaged in electoral politics. Yeah, I was one of those people for a long time. Uh, I think, you know, what's changed for me is I, I don't think that, that um, anyone, I don't think that electoral politics alone or in themselves will bring about um, really uh, substantial change. But I think that if you um, engage in the the political system 
um, as part of a broader movement that is based in uh, working class organizing. And, and this is, you know, one reason that I advocate um, having labor as a base. Um, I, I, it, it makes sense to me that you uh, have that much more. It, it's just one front in in a broader struggle, right? So in my experience, you know, with I was involved in Occupy Wall Street, which totally um, issued electoral politics. And it was actually like a big debate, you know, amongst the, the people involved in that then was if we would have any involvement in there. And, and what I've learned um, from years of organizing in all different kinds of contexts is that you just can't ignore the political system. You can't operate totally outside of it. So, you know, I, I don't I don't claim that I'm going to be able to get in there on my own and just make big changes. And I think in the long run, um, you know, the uh, real structural changes that we need aren't going to take place uh, just in the halls of government. Um, but if, uh, you know, somebody like me who's already, who's outspoken against developers, right? I'm not getting money from banks. I'm not getting money from uh, profiteers. I'm dependent on uh, this kind of um, working class base, which I believe uh, lends to accountability. You know, if I stray from, I think that politicians shouldn't be trusted to do the right thing, but should be given mandates. And if they stray from that mandate, then they should be held accountable. Uh, and in this case, that means, you know, losing a, a grassroots support or whatever you want it, because I really need to have, you know, all my contributions come in uh, small donations, typically under $100. And that means that I need to have a lot of people on board. And if I start you know, trying to do something different from what I've campaigned for, uh, then I I lose that base of support. But I really want to emphasize, I guess, that um, you know, in in the broader political sense, we need to pursue all avenues of struggle. Um, electoral politics shouldn't be the focus, and there are a lot. There's a lot of danger in um, getting caught up in that and, and expending all your energy. But I also don't think that we can afford to ignore it. If nothing else, you know, we're putting pressure on a council that is totally complacent. They're very comfortable. And even, you know, the more progressive members that, you know, they've got, they've passed some good laws and um, introduced some good bills like this, uh, Paid Family Leave Act, but it's not doing anything to mitigate displacement and the rapidly growing homelessness problem that we have as a consequence of that. And I think that, um, you know, in order for us to, I think organizing is a long-term effort. And there are a lot of obstacles. You can't uh, very effectively organize if you're struggling just to survive. I think that there are some short and midterm policy interventions that we can make in order to create larger openings for a mobilization of working people. But if you don't 
make a claim to it as a as a as a as a person who's from a lower class or from the working class, then you're leaving it to just the executives of corporations or uh, the people who are running these massive super PACs that are able to get millions of dollars to use for their own advocacy campaigns. You're letting them push their neoliberal or neoconservative agendas. And then you, you know, by not making any claim, have ceded that space to them. Uh, yeah, and I mean, to take it further, like, I think that, um, I'm, you know, I want to, I question a lot of the rhetoric about uh, campaign finance, even. So I support campaign finance reform, but I also understand that, uh, you know, this is a capitalist political system that's by its very nature driven by money. And so I guess, you know, the question is, um, does it make sense for us to have our own PACs, uh, whether it's for, you know, uh, for labor or, um, I don't know, you know, any, any, uh, any base of support, you know, the, the, the material reality of it is that, um, you need to have resources in order to, you need to, uh, gather resources in order to be politically effective in any context. And I think that the left marginalizes itself by uh, this politics of abstention, you know, by just uh, expecting that if we, this uh, this notion that we can organize outside of the society in which we live doesn't make sense to me. And I think we need to even question some of the assumptions about uh, things like that, like what, you know, are PACs inherently evil? Or should we be marshalling these kind of resources ourselves uh, to um, match or to, uh, you know, come up against what the uh, neoliberal or corporate uh, institutions are coming up with? Well, thanks, Drew. So uh, you can give our listeners uh, any information about your campaign or how they can support your work. Yeah, um, you can... uh, Find more information on our website, drewfordc.com. If you're um, interested in getting involved in the campaign yourself, you can sign up there. If you'd like to make a financial contribution, I would greatly appreciate it. You can also do it at our website. And we're on every social media platform. Um, So I encourage people to check us out and to interact with us. you know, we have a lot of uh, channels, communication, and we really want to make sure that we're engaged with uh, ordinary working people so that this isn't just, you know, one person's campaign, but this is something that's inclusive and ultimately accountable. All right. Well, thanks again, Drew. 